If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to look with me in the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read some verses from that chapter as we're continuing on in our study through the Bible. I wanted to say a couple things to you on the front end before I read. One is, I wanted to give you a health update. So I have my next round of surveillance coming up in about three weeks. So my anxiety levels are starting to rise and my nervousness is starting to be more and more present. So if you would like to pray for me over these next number of weeks, I would really appreciate that. Uh, I have these scans about every 90 days for probably three, maybe five years. And so uh, I feel like I'm on a constant, really bizarre, threatening clock. So in three weeks, I go to Duke. And if you want to pray for that, I really, really would deeply appreciate your prayers. My life is in God's hands. Have we forgotten that? Uh, I will be healed. I just don't know if it's on this side of the grave, but I will be healed. I don't know what God's plan is for me. So if you would pray for that again, I've said that 16 times. Thank you. Let's move on, Dave. So we're in our study of the Bible, and we are looking at the four-part story of Scripture. We spent several weeks at the beginning of the year looking at Genesis 1 and 2, and then we've spent a lot of time thinking about following creation, thinking about rebellion and redemption. We've had a heavy dose of that since Genesis, the start of that in Genesis 3. But sprinkled throughout that uh, rebellion and redemption that we're seeing throughout the Old Testament is sprinkled in this constant sense of restoration. And I hope if you've been here for a few weeks, you have picked up on that. In other words, what God says in creation in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, our rebellion can't stop it. Uh, Jesus was very effective in answering sin, so much so that one day there'll be restoration. In other words, the way that God set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2 will be the way things will be. So restoration is connected to the beginning of the story, except if you really want to get excited, read Revelation, because it's actually better than Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, there was a chance that this could not work out that well, and we all know what happened. Revelation, it's the garden 2.0. It's the garden without sin, without temptation, without death, without the threat of disease, the possibility of it. How about that for a way to look at reality? That's what God's given us to look at reality, that four-part story, which is what we're exploring this year. So briefly, I wanted to cover with you the five statements that correspond to the four-part story, because I know you know the four-part story. You can rattle that off. But I want you to get the five statements down too. So let's go through these quickly. Can we do this? Can we try to do a little bit together? So the first statement is this. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Genesis 1, Revelation 22. 2, remember this one? Evil is what? Real, but it... Thank you, I like hearing it. Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. That's what we believe as followers of Christ. We don't discount evil, we think it's real but it never gets the last word. Three, remember the third one? Grace, right? God initiates, pursues, and saves. Beginning to end of the Bible, you find grace. You learn about grace. We're taught grace. Four, he did it. 
Jesus actually accomplished something through his life, death, and resurrection. He didn't live, die, and rise again to make something possible or to make you savable. He's a literal savior. He actually did something. He not only defeated darkness and death and our great enemies, he guaranteed the salvation of his people, you, me, so that our hope is not in self. It's in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. What's the last one? Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in the Bible, everything in your life, everything in history, everything is moving toward Jesus. The most difficult thing you had this past week, guess what God was doing through that? Moving you toward Jesus. The greatest thing that you experienced this past week, guess what God was doing? Moving you toward Jesus. You get the pattern here? He's trying to convince you that evil's real but doesn't get the last word. He's trying to convince you that he's pursuing you and saving you. He's trying to convince you that Christ has done something for you. He's trying to convince you that he's always been building his people, the church. All right, Daniel 2, listen to this. Here are some excerpts from this chapter. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Skip down to verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Skip down to verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, then the, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, such uh, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offering up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us understand your word. Here we are in your presence, Lord. Would you remind us afresh that your word doesn't uh, return to you empty? That your word is powerful, that it brings with it life. It brings with it everything that we need to know what it means to believe and to know how to live because, Holy Spirit, you're teaching us that this word, the word of God, reveals Jesus to us. So we ask that you might indeed make Christ clear to us, that we might worship, that we might live, that we might receive life abundant. For we do pray in his name, amen. Let me introduce you to a new old friend this morning. This is going to be a pattern for the next number of weeks. Let me introduce you to a new old friend. His name is Daniel. You might know a little bit about him. You might know nothing about him. So let's just sketch out who this guy is. Daniel was one of those who was part of the first wave to be taken into captivity in Babylon. So remember, David ruled, then Solomon after him, and then the kingdom was divided, and God said that the divided kingdom would go into captivity. The northern and the southern kingdom both would go into captivity. And Daniel was part of the first wave to go into the Babylonian captivity. And he entered captivity in Babylon as a teenager. Imagine that. Just a teenage boy going into captivity. And he was granted special status. He was under the direct supervision of the king, of Nebuchadnezzar. It's amazing. We're going to come back to that. And while he was living there, he had friends. Matter of fact, he was friends with Ezekiel. How about that? We talked about him a few weeks ago. And not only did he know Ezekiel, but Daniel understood and had access to and had taken deeply in, and had taken in deeply the words of the prophet Jeremiah, which we looked at a few weeks ago, which means 
that what Jeremiah said to God's people about going, in, going into captivity was on Daniel's mind as he was a teenager under the direct supervision of the king in exile. How about that? Daniel started writing around the year 530. Well, that's the introduction to our friend. Here's the point of Daniel 2 this morning. Got it down to three words this week. The gospel purifies. That's the point. The gospel purifies. That's what we're going to look at this morning when we talk through and work through the story and then look at takeaways together. The gospel purifies. So let's make sure we're all on the same page and let's get this story in chapter 2 because I encapsulated in the verses I read, but let's fill in some details and make sure we understand what's going on in chapter 2. So here's the story. It begins in the king's palace at night with a nightmare. Nebuchadnezzar is awake when he should be sleeping. He's in his palace. He wakes up. And he can't go back to sleep because he has had a really bad dream. And as a result of that dream, he is profoundly troubled. He is shook. He's not just bothered, he is shook. I mean shook to the core of his being. And as a result of that, verses 2 through 13 tell you that he makes this demand He says, I want someone to come and tell me my dream and its interpretation. Did you catch that? Nebuchadnezzar's demand is not that he wants someone to interpret his dream only. He actually wants someone to come into his presence, who wasn't there, and to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream, the dream that he had when he was sleeping. So today, when you perhaps go out to lunch or grab something to eat sometime in the near future and you go to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress comes up to your table and says, what would you like to eat? And you say, you tell me. I'm not going to tell you. You tell me. I'm not going to stay at this place to eat unless you tell me what I want to eat and drink. Sound a little crazy? Now, some of you have gone to restaurants a lot and people recognize you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a blanket statement where Nebuchadnezzar says, someone has to come into my presence and tell me my dream and its interpretation. And he even said, if that doesn't happen, I will kill all of the wise men in my land. In other words, this is a threat of death. If you were known for being a sorcerer, if you were known for being a sage, if you were known for just being the type of person that has all kinds of wisdom and insight, Your head was on the table. This was a call to you. This was saying, tell me what it is and interpret it. Well, Daniel hears of this. And he goes to Arioch, the assistant to the king, and he says, hey, get me an appointment with the king. Can I get on this calendar? Let's make it soon. You know why Daniel would say that, right? He doesn't want to die. He's got three friends with him. He's got a whole host of people. And he wants to get on the king's schedule very soon. Arioch says, here it is. Here's the date. Gives him a date. We don't know exactly what time it was or what day it was, but he has a date on the calendar. And you know what Daniel does? If you go back and read the text, what you find is that this is what Daniel does. 
He goes home, he goes to his three friends, and he says, guys, you know the king's command. The king wants someone to tell the dream and the interpretation. Who can do that except God? Even the other sages in the land were saying, you're asking us to do something that's godlike. So Daniel gathers his friends and says, let's pray. Let's get together and pray. Let's seek God. Let's see if God won't give us insight and understanding. Let's see what God wants to do with this situation. Because Daniel knew there's no tricks to this. There's, there's no, he's at the end of himself, right? There's no way he can do anything other than seek the Lord. So his friends pray. They seek the Lord, and God gives Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He, tells, he shows him the dream and its interpretation. So Daniel goes to the king. And if you look in verses, oh, let's see, 14 to 23, uh, then 24 to 35, and then 36 to 45, Daniel goes to the king, lays out the dream and its interpretation. He says, here it is, king. Here's your dream. Here's what it means. That's the story. That's the story of Daniel chapter 2. The king, of course, is overwhelmed. We read some of that, right? Wow, your God must be real, Daniel. Can't believe we ought to offer incense, Daniel. Let's take up an offering for Daniel. Look at what happened here. No one else could tell me my dream. That's how paranoid Nebuchadnezzar was. He didn't want people to lie to him by telling them the dream so they could make something up. But Daniel could because of what God did. Well, what does this mean? Let's talk about takeaways. The first takeaway, there are three. The first takeaway for us is this. We, we can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Anyone in here not had a sleepless night? We can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar. We know what it's like to have stressful things going on in our lives. We all know what it's like to be uh, just below the surface, really upset, frustrated, nervous, scared, worry, anxious, unsure, discontent, just don't know. We can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar. We know what it's like to not be able to sleep because things are going on in our lives. But here's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. There was no outward threat. There was no visible threat to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. He had just taken and conquered another land. In world history, uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar ranks way up there. Nebuchadnezzar had things figured out. There was no one beating on his borders, threatening to come and overtake his land. He was expanding. And here he is. Outwardly speaking, you would think nothing is wrong. But inside, he is so fragile. Can you relate to that? Oh, outwardly, things look good. Outwardly, somebody looks at your life and they recognize, well, I don't see anything that's really wrong in your life. But you, who are living that life, know that just below the surface, you're worried, you're anxious, you're scared, you don't know what's going to happen, you're fragile. We can relate to Nebuchadnezzar, not only with the sleepless nights, but also just internally being really scared and concerned and worked up. 
You know why Nebuchadnezzar was so worked up? Let me tell you why. Yes, it's true. He had this dream about this huge statue that was gold and silver and bronze. Did you catch all that? And he learned that there was this rock that was going to come and knock down the statue. And it is absolutely true. We read it together that this was describing kingdoms that would rise and then fall, right? This is talking about kingdoms, not just Babylon, but those that would follow, Greece, ultimately Rome. It's all there, Persia, it's all there. But don't skip over the obvious. It's easy to do that when we come to some prophetic sections. The obvious is this. The first audience and the first application of this dream was Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. The first application of this dream was that Nebuchadnezzar was realizing that his kingdom was going to fail. Do you see what this is telling people like you and me? That we can relate to Nebuchadnezzar all the way down, all the way to our core. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was to build his kingdom. That's what he was living for. He was building his own kingdom. Matter of fact, if you look in chapter 3, he builds a monument. This interaction with Daniel didn't last too long, did it? He builds a monument to his God in chapter 3 and demands everybody bows down. In chapter 4, if you keep reading about Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? He walks out his palace uh, onto his palace patio one day and he surveys his kingdom and you know what he says? Look at my amazing kingdom that I have built with my own skills. That was the day he was struck down. Remember that? Do you see what this is telling us? Nebuchadnezzar was terrified, shook, worried, anxious, fragile, because his whole life was about building his kingdom. And that connects with us because we are so bent on building our own kingdoms. Some of you may be more aggressive than this, at this than others, but all of us have ideas of how we think our life should go. All of us have ideas, some of us even have goals and aspirations of what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, what we want to build, the type of family that we want, the type of career that we want, the type of money that we should have, what we can do with that money. We all are bent to building our own kingdom. And this is what it looks like. It happens when self-interest begins to clone God's promises. We have all this interest in serving ourselves and in building our life and establishing what we want. And oftentimes we clone the promises of God because we want to co-opt God's word to serve our interests. So we can have a tendency to read the Bible with little phrases that are taken out of context and claim that, thinking that if I just do this and create these maxims, they'll fit into my spiritual algorithm and I will get the outcome that I want. All we've done is let self-interest clone the promises of God. All we've done is co-opted the word of God to fit our 
interests in what we want to build. That's why it's so easy for us to want to just spend time with people that completely agree with us. It's why we find it so easy not to sacrifice, but to surround ourselves with people that just affirm who we are, what we're doing. We're building our own kingdom. It's why it's so easy for us to spend all of our money on ourselves and not be generous with anyone, anywhere, at any time. It's why it's so easy for us to never truly, deeply, sincerely ask for help. It's why we have a hard time asking for advice. It's why we have a hard time opening up and actually expressing what's really going on in our lives and asking for help in that because we don't want anyone to see that our kingdom isn't as pretty or as stable or as sturdy as we want it to be. It's really hard to ask for advice when you really have to open up at the core. I mean, when you really need advice. I mean, when you're really stuck. That's why we don't find it that easy to do that because we're protective by nature. We're fearful of what others are gonna think or say or do because we're building our own kingdom. Meanwhile, inside, because we've co-opted God's word to serve our interests, what that means is just below the surface, we are terrified. And we're so focused on self and so concerned about self and so concerned about image, we can't even ask for help. Let me put it to you this way. If you look back over your life and think through your life and think through the things that you've done in your life, have there, has there ever been a time or have there been lots of times in which you decided to take on some responsibility, you decided that you wanted to serve in some capacity, and you served, and you took on responsibility, but over time, when that ended up, that responsibility ended up coming to an end, or that service term ended up getting to its conclusion, you started realizing that you didn't get the result that you wanted, you didn't get thanked like you thought you should. And it didn't, it didn't go the way that you wanted. If that's ever happened to you, let me just suggest that from the moment that you took that responsibility or desire to serve, you weren't really interested in taking that responsibility or serving for any other reason other than just serving yourself. And in building your own kingdom, we can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar. All of us. All of us. Takeaway number two. We should identify with Daniel. We can identify with Nebuchadnezzar, make no mistake, but we should identify with Daniel. You see, Daniel was um, trying to figure out how in the world can I honor the Lord, follow the Lord in a really hostile context? How in the world can I live out my faith in a context that is really pagan, that hates my God? 
How in the world can I do that? And in particular, how in the world can I serve in the capacity that he ultimately serves in, which is a high level, a high government position? How in the world can I do that while remaining faithful to God? That's a reality that we all have to deal with, isn't it? However many hours that you're going to work this week, or however many hours you're going to be at home this week, guess what? That's your question. How in the world can I serve God faithfully in a hostile environment? Some of your environments are more hostile than others. Some of your weeks are more hostile than others. Sometimes things can be really hostile at home, right? And you got to figure out how can I serve the Lord and honor the Lord in hostile environments. Oh, uh, uh, and don't forget this. I need to ramp this up for you with Daniel. Remember in the introduction when I said Daniel was uh, exiled as a teenager to Babylon? Remember that? That he was under the direct supervision of the king? Do you remember that? Well, here was Nebuchadnezzar's plan. His first wave of taking God's people into captivity was highlighted by this. I'm going to find all the best business leaders and I'm going to get the young stars Because if I can take the rising stars of God's people, what I want to do is take these teenagers that everyone knows are spectacularly gifted and smart and intelligent, and I'm going to take the young people and bring them into Babylon, and I'm going to marinate them in pagan culture, and in another generation or two, no one will think about God anymore. That was Nebuchadnezzar's plan. His plan was to take Daniel and his friends and to marinate them in pagan culture and give them new names. Do you get those names we read? He wanted to rename them so that when, someone, so that when they were walking in Babylon, someone said, Belteshazzar, Daniel didn't think my name's Daniel and kept going. He thought, Belteshazzar, that's who I, that's who I am. Do you see it? Nebuchadnezzar was trying to destroy the thought of God and rid the earth of the thought of God. Not just by plundering God's people, but by taking the youngest and the brightest and making them forget their people and forget their God. Daniel had to figure out how to live faithfully in that. That's the background. And this is what Daniel did. Daniel knew the prophet Jeremiah's teaching, knew Jeremiah's teaching. And this is how Daniel lived it out. Daniel did not follow Jeremiah 28, but he followed Jeremiah 29. Please go back and read this. I can't read it for you. I just have to summarize it here. But see if any of this hits you. See if any of this connects. Daniel was trying to figure out how in the world can I live out my faith in a hostile context. Jeremiah writes about God's people being taken into captivity in Babylon. And in Jeremiah chapter 28, there rose up false prophets among God's people. Hananiah was named one of them. You can read about it in chapter 28. Please read it. This is what Hananiah said. This is what Hananiah said to God's people as they were living in exile. Hananiah said, y'all, in two years, we're going to overtake Nebuchadnezzar and get everything back that was taken from us. In two years, there's going to be a military strike, and we are going to break the backs of the Babylonians, and we're going to get all of our stuff back that they stole, and we are going to get power again. 
So don't go into the city. Don't be involved with them. Separation equals preservation. Does that sound familiar? That's what he said. Read it. You can read it in Jeremiah 28. He was telling God's people, don't engage. Stay away from them. He was saying in two years, we're going to break the backs of these Babylonians through our military power and get everything back. You know what Jeremiah says? In the first part of the chapter, this is what he says. Maybe, but probably not. At the end of the chapter, he says, you, Hananiah, are a false prophet. And it wasn't long before Hananiah died. Because he was telling God's people to hear and listen and do something that God has not told his people to do. And so what does Jeremiah say say in Jeremiah 29? Move in. Build houses. Move into Babylon. Build houses. Start your businesses. Marry. Have children. Seek the good of where you live. Pray for it. Because as they flourish, you will. Do you feel the weight of that difference? Hananiah was saying, separate. Hananiah was saying, stay away from those people. Hananiah was saying, separation equals preservation. And Jeremiah was saying, move in. Because God has a plan for you and for the Babylonians. And what God wants to do with the Babylonians is not a whole lot different from what he wants to do with us. Guess what that is? To change us and to grow us. <laughs> Daniel was trying to figure out how in the world can I live out Jeremiah 29? How can I seek the good? How can I pray? How can I build? Where can I marry? Who could I marry? How do I be faithful to God living in a hostile environment? And in essence, because of time, let's just boil it down to this. God's telling us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. You get it? Separation is not good. Accommodating and, tra- and, and giving up what we believe is not good. But engaging with those that don't believe like us, very good. We should identify with Daniel. Here's the last takeaway for us this morning. This is going to sound a little strange, but I hope it'll make sense by the end. Let the rock hit you. Just just let the stone hit you. In the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, there was this statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay, right? And then there was this stone. And this stone came and, and hit the statue and brought it to nothing so that it was like chaff, so that the wind would come and just blow away the remains. You read, remember that? Well, what is this stone? Well, if you look in the text, it tells us several things about the stone. One of them is that it was a stone that was made without hands. Twice it says that. In other words, 
this stone has a supernatural origin. This stone was special. This stone embodied divinity. This stone embodied the supernatural. And it's also interesting that this stone is stone. It is not considered valuable by anyone else. If your options are gold or a rock, which one are you going to pick? If your options are silver or a stone, which one are you going to take? The rock is insignificant. We don't value it. And God says, this is what brings down kingdoms. This rock is what brings down my kingdom. Did you notice the call to worship this morning? Guess who's referred to as the rock, the cornerstone? His name is Jesus. This whole vision that Nebuchadnezzar got was communicating that God is going to send his son named Jesus that God has a kingdom that he is going to establish. And when this rock hits this monument, this caricature, it tears it down. And not only does it tear it down, the rock turns into a mountain that fills the whole earth. So that when we hear this story in Daniel, God is reminding us that he has always purposed to exist with his people and to spread his glory throughout the entire earth. And now because of rebellion that we brought into the world, Christ comes. And he comes to establish the kingdom. He comes to tear down all the other kingdoms, not with military force, but with truth and with love, the same way that he engages you and me, with truth and with love. And that means, what is it that tears down the kingdoms of the world and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and our kingdoms? Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is the one that exposes when we try to build our own kingdoms. Jesus identifies where we are trying to build our kingdom. Jesus identifies it and exposes it and brings it down. And friends, that is grace. So if you want to engage this passage, if I want to engage this passage, I gotta think about the kingdom that I'm trying to build and recognize that Jesus is tearing that one down. And I've got, if I've got to figure out how in the world to live in a hostile world, in a hostile context, the way that I'm enabled to do that is through Jesus. And that is grace. It's the evidence of it. And that means that our, really, our only real comfort in life and in death is Jesus. 
who has paid for all of our sins, who watches over us, who works all things for our salvation, and by the work of his spirit makes us willing and ready to live for him now and forever. And that's what brings us to the table.